Mark Abley is a Rhodes Scholar, a Guggenheim Fellow, a winner of Canada's National Newspaper Award, and the first Canadian recipient of the Lieber Press Prize for International Writers. He has written six books of nonfiction, four collections of poetry, and two children's books. Mark lives in Pointe Claire, Quebec, where we are today to talk about his book, Conversations with a Dead Man, The Legacy of Duncan Campbell Scott. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much, Nigel. I'd like to start with the title of the book, Conversations with a Dead Man. It put me in mind of those hugely popular books called Conversations with God. Do you uh, have that in mind? I'm not sure that I did at a conscious level, but maybe I did at a subconscious level. What I wanted to avoid uh, giving the impression was that this would be a conventional biography of Duncan Campbell Scott. I wanted to indicate from the title onwards that there was something unusual about the form of this particular book. Yes, and apropos of that, the knowledge that this could not be happening, never under any circumstances matched an absolute certainty that it was. And that's what you say when uh, Duncan Campbell Scott appears in your living room. That's right. Well, you're sitting overlooking the very garden that Scott himself looks over when his, his ghost visits me nine times um, in, in the book. I wanted to find a way of making the, the personality as well as the issues in this book, more vibrant to contemporary readers than they might otherwise be. And I admit there was also, at some level, a marketing concern um, for me, because I, I work uh, part-time for McGill-Queens University Press, which publishes a significant number of biographies written by academics and in a traditional sort of form. And round about the time I was writing this book, McGill-Queens published a biography of the anthropologist Diamond Jeunesse mm. and a biography of the publisher Lorne Pierce, who ran the Ryerson Press for 30 or 40 years. And I knew what the print runs were for those books, and I knew what the sales were for those books. They were both very solid pieces of scholarship, but they attracted almost no media attention, mm. and they sold very few copies. How much is very few? You know, honestly, I shouldn't disclose that because um, it would be a confidential thing with the sure. press. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but but insignificant, the numbers are. Well, let's say in the low hundreds, okay. as far as I know. Oh, dear. And uh, at a time generally when print runs for books are shrinking, I, I wanted to try and find a way to make the character of Scott and the issues that the book raises come alive for readers more than might be the case if I started off by saying Duncan Campbell Scott was born in 1862. Yeah, yeah. No, I've read uh, the Pierce biography and just recently interviewed Sandra Campbell, and uh, it's, it's terrific. Yeah. yeah. So it must be doubly difficult to, to know that such a, such a great book is not getting that much uh, attention. I mean, it depends who the intended audience is. And for, you know, for Sandra Campbell, whom I respect very highly, maybe the fact that the book will be on all major university library shelves and will be read by grad students for mm -hmm. decades to come in small numbers, maybe that's enough. Sure. But I don't, although I work at a, what, a press that is mainly a scholarly press, I don't really... I don't have a PhD, and I don't have that sort of academic background. And mm. I was trying to reach an audience larger than simply graduate students in Canadian literature. Mm -hmm. And you think that uh, bringing a ghost in <laughs> and yourself into the story makes it more appealing? I hope so. Sure. I, I think um, it... it allows the book to be considered as creative non-fiction rather than as a straight biography. Okay. I mean, there are elements of each chapter that are almost the, all the chapters that are straightforward, research-based non-fiction in which neither Scott nor I is present. 
that's the first half of chapters two to nine, and then the second half are further conversations. So the book is not structured entirely as a set of conversations. Yeah. And there are also these other elements too. Mm-hmm. But I, I like the challenge formally and artistically of mixing those two types of writing. And of course, as a reader, I, I had to ask the question, well, did this ghost really appear for you? Or did you make that up? I'll, I'll give you two answers for that. Um, no, the, the ghost did not appear in the senses in which I describe him in the book. But when I'd finished writing the book, as, as with all books, there's an editing process. And then um, the, the final stage was going over the index and revising the index. And then I pressed send on my computer. So that was the very last item. After the writing, the editing, the proofreading, the indexing, I was done with the book and it was in the publisher's hands. And that night, for the first time, I dreamt about Duncan Campbell Scott. He and I were sitting in a restaurant having an uneasy an conversation. He did not look very happy. And the strangest thing about that dream is that everyone else in the restaurant was in color, but I, as well as Scott, was in black and white. Just like he is on the cover. Yeah, exactly. But I didn't know the, what the cover would be at the time I had the dream. So that's that's one partial answer. But the other, which is... And I think that's the first time I've ever said that in public, Nigel. But um, the second answer to that would be, you know, to take the question in a little uh, slightly different direction. How did you come up with the idea of, of writing it in this form? And And the answer to that is that when I'd done quite a lot of research, made a bunch of notes, visited some libraries and so on, I I knew the kinds of questions I was going to be asking in the book, and I knew uh, I I had a lot of quotes ready to use. And I found that what I was doing was having a conversation inside my head with Duncan Campbell Scott, often along the lines of, how could you have done that? Why did you do that? What was it that made you do this? And I realized that if I was asking those questions it would be only right to give the man himself a chance to respond and to get annoyed with me, to get irritated with my 21st century way of seeing things. Mm-hmm. So did you put yourself in his brain, in his body? Well, not, not, not in his body, but to an extent in his mind. Sure, I had to do that. In order to come up with, you know, in the, in the sections of the book that are conversations, I wanted to to make sure that Scott spoke in a way that would have been reasonable, feasible for a man who, who's at the height of whose career was the early 20th century and who died in 1947. So I've done a lot of work on, on language over the years. I, I had a language column for many years in the Montreal Gazette. So I've written about new words, the arrival of words and so on. So I knew, for example, just stray, tiny example, that the word teenager was not used much until the mid-20th century. It's a word that seems inescapable to us now. We can't imagine an English language without teen, teenager, teenage, preteen, and so on. But that concept would not have existed when Scott was a young man or a middle-aged man. Therefore, I made sure that Scott never used that word in any of his responses to me. The language that Scott used had to be language... um, Often it was based on things he had actually written, but where it, it wasn't, I was putting myself inside his mind to the extent of wanting the conversation to sound as it, as it would have been to the best of my ability, speaking to a man who was born in 1862. And... Just so I'm clear, what do you think this approach added to the biography? Greater, well, I'll let you answer. (laughs) I hope it makes the book more readable. Now, there's another issue that that plays into this decision as well. With, With a lot of biographies, whether or not the biography begins with the parents and the grandparents it's almost inevitable that there's a solid chapter one about the childhood. 
The problem with Scott is that very little is known about his childhood. He did not keep a diary or a journal, or if he did, it wasn't preserved. He uh, did not write many personal letters that have been preserved, and the ones that have been preserved don't tend to talk about his childhood. He never wrote a memoir. So there are passing references here and there. There are stray bits of information that show up in the writings of the many people who knew him. But nonetheless, it would have been very hard to create a compelling chapter one for this book, or a chapter two, mm-hmm. depending on how the book began, in which I talk about Scott's childhood. Right. The, the, the outlines of it are clear, but to make a biography in a conventional sense, really come alive. I think in a post-Freudian age, we really want to know what the subject's childhood was like. And with Scott, we can only make guesses. Most of the information that's known about Scott's childhood appears in this book, Hmm. which is to say not much. Yeah. Although not much is known about Shakespeare's life, and look at all the biographies of Shakespeare. Yeah, that's certainly true. On the other hand, Duncan Campbell Scott was not Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's look at the reason why uh, the ghost showed up. I require the help of an author capable of refuting the lies that I understand are now attached to my name. He wanted you to dispel the rumors, correct mistakes, and restore his reputation. That's the conceit of the book, if you like. That's the premise of the book, is that the ghost of Scott wants me to do this, and I pretend that I don't know anything much about Duncan Campbell Scott, and the more I learn, the more prepared I am to challenge him. But, yeah, what had happened um, was that uh, Canada's History magazine which was then called The Beaver and has had to be renamed because of uh, connotations of beaver in the internet age, asked a panel of distinguished Canadians to name the worst Canadians of all time. So I wasn't surprised to find someone like Adrien Arcan on the list, the, uh, the leader of the fascist party in Quebec and Canada in the 1930s and 40s. Or I wasn't surprised to find the name of a, a, a someone who grew up a Japanese-Canadian in British Columbia, went back to Japan in the 1930s and tortured Canadian prisoners of war. But I was surprised to find Duncan Campbell Scott on that list. And so that was one of the reasons why I proposed to Douglas and McIntyre, the publisher, that it would be interesting to write a book about Duncan Campbell Scott. Mm-hmm. So knowing that his reputation had uh, deteriorated that much. When I was growing up, I uh, studied honors um, literature at uh, the University of Saskatchewan. I never took a class in Canadian literature, but I took a, a, you know, classes in other kinds of literature, and I, w- I was aware of the main sort of figures in Canlet. And Scott, to my mind, when I was a young man, was just one of these worthy figures from what seemed like the distant past, Charles G.D. Roberts, Bliss Carman, Archibald Lampman, and so on, all of whom wrote worthy material for the time and had faded irrevocably into literary history. And for the most part, that's true of Roberts and Carman and Lampman, the the others in the so-called Confederation Poet School. But it's not true of Scott because of the the irony being that it's, it's not because of what Scott wrote as a poet or, or a short story writer, but because of what he did in his day job. He was in he was in the public service or the civil service for fifty two years. Yes, he was. And so he has a legacy of service to Canada, uh, an attachment to duty. But his attachment to duty, as he puts it in the book, meant that there were times when my imaginative voice fell silent. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I believe I'm the one who wrote that, right, rather than Scott. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're asking me what what I meant by that. (laughs) What you meant by what he meant. Yeah. Um. Scott emerged as a poet. Let, let me just quickly go through Scott's career. Sure. Is that all right, Nigel? Yeah. Um, Scott was born in, in 1862. He was the son of a Methodist minister 
and uh, the family traveled around eastern Ontario and, and southern Quebec when Scott was a boy. They were very well connected, and Scott was actually asked, what, sorry, Scott's father, the Reverend William Scott, was asked by the Methodist Church to prepare a major report on in 1879 on what was then a significant public policy issue, which was what to do with the Mohawks of Oka Ganesataki, exactly what would become a major issue in Canada 111 years later with the Oka crisis. So, so although they were well connected, and indeed Scott William Scott, the father, knew Sir John A. Macdonald, they were not wealthy, and there was not the money to allow young Duncan to go uh, to McGill University and study to become a doctor, which was what he initially wanted. But instead, Sir John A. said, oh, sure, there's a promising young man, he can come and join my department. And it so happened that the Prime Minister in those days, the 1870s and 80s, was not only uh, in charge of the cabinet, but was also, as they said, the superintendent the superintendent general of Indian affairs or the minister of Indian affairs. Mm. Scott, Duncan Campbell Scott joined the department first as a kind of copy boy and then he worked his way up and he uh, became the chief accountant for the department and then he was in charge of educational policy and then between 1913 and 1931, so for an 18-year period, he was the deputy superintendent general, in other words, the deputy minister. And this was at a time when there was very little, if any, difference in policies between the liberals and the conservatives, who were the only two parties that mattered in Canada at the time. And they basically left the civil service to run things, which means that Scott looked after, uh, was in, in control of the Aboriginal people of this country for, for 18 years. So there really was arm's length back yeah, then, very like much. they're supposed to be, but isn't today. Yes, because Indian affairs, for the most part, was not a political issue. It was it was something that the, uh, the two parties largely agreed on. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in the 1890s, Scott was a friend of uh, the poet Archibald Lampman in Ottawa, and... Um, in the late 1880s and 1890s, when he was a young man, he wrote uh, several, uh, wrote a few books of poetry, and he also wrote a, a book of short stories set in uh, rural Quebec. And he was, you know, set, setting up for a, a good literary career. But as he became more and more prominent in the civil service mm -hmm. and entered middle age, he wrote less and less. So there was not much poetry that emerged in the 1900s and the 1910s and the 1920s. And then in the 1930s, after he'd retired, there was uh, there were two more books. So all that time when he was working very hard, well, when he was working fairly hard as a civil servant, he wasn't writing that much. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. he, or he was writing memos. He was writing office memoranda. He, he was telling people in the department what to do, but he wasn't writing many poems or short stories. Yeah, you might almost say he wasn't... Uh, with his poetry, he may have been telling the truth, but with his memorandums, he was, what, using language that was highly bureaucratic and uh, euphemistic, and uh, it's quite a contradiction. Yeah. As is always the case, I think, with uh, with civil servants. There's been a lot of Latin American writers who have been diplomats as well, mm -hmm. and how they balance the poetry and the diplomacy, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. And then you you know Wallace Stevens was uh, vice president of the Hartford Life Insurance Company, yeah. so he must have written a lot of memoranda as well. It's just that in in Canada at the moment. You know, we we have this impression that poetry is something that belongs in creative writing departments, and that's where poets ought to teach. And I've never felt that myself. Poets ought to be poor, starving, <laughs> angry. Uh, yeah, that works for a while, and then it doesn't work. Yeah, he certainly wasn't starving. You know, he led quite a respectable life in Ottawa. Very respectable. Yeah, he uh, even mixed in what for the time, probably counted as high society mm -hmm. in, in, in Ottawa. He was friends with, you know, uh, the top civil servants and um, I believe with some politicians and certainly with journalists and so on. Yeah. 
And of course, uh, well-respected in the literary community as well. Absolutely. Wasn't he the head of the Authors Association? Yep, the Canadian Authors Association. And w w one of the surprising things to me was was to find that there were some things that he was uh, working on, not just as a bureaucrat, but outside his bureaucratic realm, such as copyright issues, which continue to be an important concern for writers even today. Mm -hmm. Scott wanted to make sure that writers in the 1920s and 30s had copyright protection for their work. <laughs> this was one of the interesting things about him to me was that in many ways, and I'm going to use the word liberal with a small L, not a large L, mm. in many ways he was impeccably liberal. <laughs> the best of his poems combined precise observations of the natural world with sh a shrewd grasp of human character and superb rhythmic sense. Plus, he, uh, he loved classical music. Absolutely. Music was really important to him. And I think the musicality comes through in his poetry. His wife, um, whose, whose maiden name was Belle Botsford, was from uh, New England. And she went on performing. Even after their marriage, she went on. She did some performing uh, under the name Belle Botsford, which I think would have been pretty unusual for a century ago for the, the wife of a civil servant to have her own career and perform under her own name. Hmm. So she didn't give it all up for him then? At first, no, she didn't. One of the things I would have liked to find out, and and I couldn't find a way of discovering this, was what really became of her after the death of their only child, and that was a landmark event in Scott's life. He uh, and, and, and Belle had a daughter called Elizabeth, whom they doted on, who was musically very talented, and they sent her off to a boarding school in Paris, the Conservatoire, and she died there of scarlet fever. And that obviously had a deep impact on uh, on, on Duncan Campbell Scott and, and his wife. Mm. And, you know, what, one of the questions I asked, and, and I hope I asked this in a sufficiently speculative way without, with, without writing the answer in, in absolutely black and white deterministic terms, is how did this affect Scott's attitude to the residential schools? He had sent his own child yeah, so, off to so a... It's so ironic, isn't off it? To, yeah, he'd sent his own child off to an elite boarding school, and she died there. And when Scott saw, as we know, he did see the shocking figures about illness and death in the Indian residential schools for which he was responsible. Was his heart numbed by that point? Did he feel, well, it's natural that lots of children die at schools. That's what happens to children. One doesn't know. Yeah. Well, and we know, at least from your book, the pain that he felt being separated from her. Yeah. And and look at the damage that that did to generations of indigenous, aboriginal, yeah. native people in Canada. Yeah. I, so think, I, I think as someone whose parents were English, although not at all from an upper-class background, whose, whose wife is also British. You know, I, I have a lot of British relatives and friends. I think the tradition of English boarding schools has done a great deal of damage also mm -hmm. um, in the United Kingdom itself. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's, it's something that is not much talked about, is, is how it wasn't just um, indigenous people in Canada at the time whose children were sent off to boarding school. It was, it was done as well by many of the the wealthiest um, people. Right. The difference being, of course, that the wealthy people had the choice to do it. Mm -hmm. The indigenous parents had no choice. Yeah. Shoddily built havens of infectious disease. That's how you describe it. I, I think that's true. I think the facts back that up. And there was a, a report by Dr. Peter Bryce, who was the... Um, medical examiner for the Department of Indian Affairs in the first years of the 20th century. And he did the, made the very unusual step of going to the press, which at that time was almost never done. Mm. And it was indeed taken up uh, for a little while in places like the Toronto Star. Bryce's reports about infectious diseases and the poor quality of the food, the buildings and so on. Um, that's one way in which it would have been hugely advantageous to indigenous people if 
this had been a political issue, but the fact that neither the Liberals nor the Conservatives had anything to gain by uh, talking about this meant that Bryce's report was a brief sensation in the press, and then it was forgotten mm-hmm. for decades. Did uh, Scott thwart the report? He couldn't um, suppress it entirely, but I think he made sure that nothing happened as a result of it, or that very little happened. There were some, there were some improvements that were made, some modest improvements in the years leading up to the First World War. But then the war arrived, and all the government's efforts, including many of the efforts in the Department of Indian Affairs, were immediately devoted to fighting for the British Empire. Mm. And the soldiers, the army, the war effort took precedence over everything else. So the fact that uh, the, the schools were in a terrible state in 1914 meant that really that, that no improvements were begun until perhaps 1919 or 1920. Yeah. So at that point, did he... Scott resist calls for more funding? Did he actively resist? He would have been the one, you know, to make the calls for more funding. And as Mm. far as I can tell, he didn't very much. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, that did puzzle me. And there were certainly reports that would have landed on his desk from, from a few Indian agents and from nurses and so on complaints. I believe without, being able to prove the point, I believe that Scott thought these were just isolated instances and that, oh yeah, things aren't going so well at the Onion Hills School in 1922. Well, that's too bad, but they're going well at most other places. He didn't appear to realize the extent to which the problems in the schools were a complete pattern. He was very proud of having been responsible for the creation of the first residential school in the Maritimes, Shubenacadie in Nova Scotia. And uh, it's very clear from the testimony of survivors of that school in the following decades, that was a pretty miserable place, a very miserable place. The the abuses that were happening in in other schools across the country happened as well in Shubenacadie. So where does that leave us? I think that leaves us with a picture of someone who seems to have genuinely believed that even if the schools were not perfect, they were what government policy called for, and his his job was to carry out government policy, and his job was absolutely not to rock the boat. And so mm. he did not do any boat rocking. That's the bureaucrat in him. Yeah, whereas someone like Peter Bryce, the doctor I mentioned just now, Bryce was prepared to rock the boat, and it cost him advancement in his career, and eventually Scott shoved him out of the department. And that uh, policy that you refer to is basically the assimilation of indigenous populations into to become Canadian citizens. Is that right? That's a that's a crucial question. The answer to which I've become less and less sure about over the past few years, because it seems to me there's a basic contradiction at the heart of the policy and i don't know if scott was able to resolve the contradiction in a way i haven't found or whether he acknowledged the contradiction but didn't worry about it or whether he didn't see the contradiction and what i mean by the contradiction is that on the one hand indigenous parents and families were forced to give up their children to be educated for 10, 12 years in these government-run institutions where they were supposed to become more uh, ready to fit into the Canadian mainstream. But on the other hand, the schools were keeping the Indigenous people together rather than, rather than bringing them into any kind of mainstream. So especially when you have um, a residential school as as there were many in the prairies in British Columbia mm. and in the territories, that was 10, 20, 30, 50 miles away from the nearest town of any size. How could that 
possibly advance the cause of assimilation if it really was a cause. It seems from, you know, my best guess would be that Scott thought that the process would take many generations and that... Well, well he also, he also res- basically, they couldn't use their own language. They couldn't communicate with their parents who would talk to them about their culture. So when they came out, uh, they wouldn't fit into the, res- the reserves... So they, and they had a sort of a Western education, so they would, what, automatically go into the mainstream society as a result. That, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I, I suppose it's not a contradiction. Uh, well, I suppose the ideal would be that they'd become carpenters and uh, janitors and and whatever. But mm. you know, the the other point that's really important to remember is that through the late 19th century and into the first years, first decades of the 20th century, the population of indigenous people in Canada was falling. Mm. And the annual reports which I I looked at, which were very extensive, uh, issued by the Department of Indian Affairs in Scott's name, he would have spent many weeks in each year writing these annual reports. And they gave statistical accounts of the number of to use the word that was prevalent at the time, the number of Indians, province by province. And very often what those figures showed going from 1880 to 1890 to 1900 to 1906 or 1908 was that the numbers kept dropping. So the general belief at the time was, uh, or the widely held belief at the time was in survival of the fittest, coming out of the social Darwinist movement in the United States and England. Perhaps. It was Herbert Spencer you mentioned. Yeah, Herbert Spencer was a, a British philosopher who, yeah. uh, who coined that term. Uh, Darwin himself may have had some beliefs that, that led in that direction, but he certainly never um, extended his, his thinking to human beings in the way that Herbert Spencer and others did. And it was people on the political right, if you like, as well as on the political left who believed that. And remember, this was also the time of the eugenics movement, when well-meaning Canadians like Nellie McClung and Tommy Douglas believed in eugenics. And so Duncan Campbell Scott may, and again, I only wish we had more of his private papers to help us know this for sure, he he may well have felt that that Indigenous people were, were doomed to disappear, that the strong ones would survive, would have the basis of an education thanks to the residential schools and within a few generations would fit into the mainstream and that the weaker ones were doomed to die and that it was a mistake to try and and save them. One of his most famous poems is a sonnet called The Onondaga Madonna, which he wrote in the late 1890s. He was call it one of the most, his most accomplished po- uh, sonnets. Yeah, he, he didn't write that many sonnets, but this was a very good one. Mm. And he refers to uh, the poem's mainly a description of a young Onondaga woman. And the Onondagas are one of the smaller groups at the Six Nations Reserve in southern Ontario, which is, the, I believe, the most populous in the country. Richest too, right? Probably. And, and Scott refers to uh, a baby in his mother's arms and the baby has paler skin than his mother so presumably the father is white and Scott uses the line the latest promise of his her nation's doom and so perhaps that's meant to indicate that the Onondaga would gradually assimilate into mainstream society that would be the destruction of them but that as he would have put it some of their blood would carry on. Activists today accuse him of genocide, or at least cultural genocide. Yeah. Is that justified? Oh, that's a, again, that's a hard one, Nigel. It depends on the meaning of the word genocide. Mm. Activists accuse him. Well, I I think that the danger of putting Scott on a sort of pedestal to which you then take a, an axe and knock him to the ground is that it risks excusing the society of which he was part. Scott was not himself, I think, an evil man, but he has become symbolic of policies that perpetrated, uh, I will use the word evil. 
I, I have a friend who's a, who's a Mohawk, and when um, I told him that I was writing a book about Duncan Campbell Scott, there was a pause. And I said, I, I, in fact, I'm even inviting his ghost into my living room. And there was another pause. And then he said, can you waterboard a ghost? And this is a very civilized, thoughtful man, but that was his response to the name Duncan Campbell Scott. He's a scapegoat. He's very much a scapegoat. And one thing I wish I'd made more clear in the book is that he is associated often with three quotes, three Mm. quotes that seem to sum up the perfidy of Canadian policy at the time. And only one of those quotes was ever said by anybody. Scott was associated with the phrase final solution, which of course was the Nazi phrase for dealing with the Jews. But um, it turns out that almost certainly that the phrase final solution was invented by an activist and was then repeated by uh, and a white activist, I should say, not anyone indigenous, mm. and was then repeated in a quasi scholarly book and was repeated by Thomas King in a non fiction book. And since King and, uh, had associated with Duncan Campbell Scott, I felt I had to include it in, in this book, otherwise, everyone would be asking me why I didn't do that. Mm. And I should have looked a little more closely into the origin of that phrase. Maybe it's not an inaccurate one for what at the time in the Department of Indian Affairs was the policy, but it's not a phrase that Scott himself ever used. And then there's the phrase, kill the Indian and the child, for which Stephen Harper, when he was prime minister, apologized in 2009. And again, that was not a phrase that was ever used in Canada by Scott or anyone else. It, it was kill the Indian in the man, which was said by the superintendent of a residential school in the United States. And then in the Royal Commission on, Ab- on Aboriginal Peoples report in 1996, what happened was that it was, quote, kill the Indian in the end quote child. And then that was taken up by Southern News at the time, which ran the Ottawa Citizen and so on, and the quotation marks were dropped, and it was put in the front page headline, Kill the Indian in the Child, and then it became a byword for everything that was wrong about policy. And indeed, it you know, it, it, it does sum up much of what was what was wrong in the policy. But it was not a phrase that was ever uttered, least of all by Duncan Campbell Scott. Yeah. So so that's what I meant. But I don't mean to excuse for one second Scott's policies because the the book, I hope, takes him on and confronts him and mm-hmm. shows why those policies were wrong. But Scott himself, as, an, as a kind of icon of evil, I, I really regret that that's become the case. Yeah, you say that residential schools were the spine and a hallmark of Scott's policy. That's right. And he did run the schools for seven or eight years before becoming the deputy minister. And as deputy minister, he ultimately retained control of them. So he was in charge of the system for a good 25 years. Yeah. And that's when the system was at its height. I think one of the one of the key excuses for his behavior was that conventional wisdom of the day was that Indians needed to be assimilated. That was just... The, uh, and you, you also reference eugenics but there's also you, you mentioned Mackenzie King and the fact that that he came up with all sorts of racist remarks and and Winston Churchill I mean the leaders of the, of our countries yeah yeah if you're going around chopping down statues there's almost an infinite number of statues that can be chopped down mm-hmm. um the other thing about the schools though is that the government laid out the broad strokes of policy and the government provided the funding, but it was the churches who actually yeah. ran the schools. Catholics and, out west, right? And not entirely. The 50% of them roughly were, were Catholics. Mm-hmm. If, if I had to do a rough estimate of the, the numbers, it would be 50% Roman Catholic, 30% Anglican, 15% Methodist United, 
and 5% Presbyterian. Those were the four denominations. Yeah. There were only two or three Presbyterian schools, but the number of the ones run by the Protestant churches was almost equal to the number of the ones run by the Catholics. And for a time when I was doing the research, it did occur to me that perhaps the, the Catholic ones were the worst. However, there seemed to be just as many complaints and just as many children running away from and dying at the Anglican and the Methodist and the Presbyterian ones as at the Catholic schools. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the thing about the, the churches was that in Canada in the first half of the 20th century, the churches had tremendous moral force in a way that they're, they don't any, any longer. Um, Scott himself had been brought up uh, in the heart of the Methodist church. He gradually moved away from that to a more kind of transcendentalist overview. He was quite interested, uh, I, I think, in Eastern religions too, but he never actually, as far as I know, renounced Christianity. And he was very happy to leave the running of the schools in the hands of the churches. But this was convenient for both parties because it allowed the churches to say, with absolute truth, it allowed the churches to say, the government isn't giving us enough money we could do a better job if only we had the funds to to make the schools all that they should be and the government could say well we're giving funds to these churches and after all they do get funds from canadians anyway so it's up to them if the schools are not everything they should be yeah. so the the indigenous people were really caught between a very high place and an enormous rock yeah Neither of them taking responsibility. That's right. Yeah. I think part of that conventional wisdom was also that uh, once they no longer thought of themselves as Indian, they'd no longer be a problem. That's right. Yeah. The problem would, would, would eventually disappear. And of those three quotes that I, I mentioned that Scott is, is often um, blamed for uttering, the one that he really did utter was to a House of Commons committee in, in 1920 or 21, when he said that the aim of the department was eventually to eliminate the Indian problem once and for all. Yeah. In other words, eventually assimilate them. And the kids in the, in the schools were motherless, fatherless, unwanted and unloved and emerged as lost souls. Uh, I suppose trying to fill the void with drugs and alcohol, yeah, yeah, and violence, and and they, having been taken away from their parents at the age of, usually six or seven, but sometimes as young as four and five years old, they didn't know how to become parents themselves. So when yeah. they came out of the schools, mm -hmm. uh, understandably, many of them resorted to alcohol. But even if, if that wasn't an immediate um, destination for them, so to speak, if they had families themselves, you know, they weren't sure what to do. And, and they couldn't communicate, in most cases, with the grandparents, the elders, because the elders didn't speak English or French. The elders only spoke the indigenous language, and the indigenous language had been taken away from the children. Yeah. Just getting back to the Onan... Onondaga Madonna that you mentioned, it seems like uh, his poetry, his, his lyrical poetry, idolized the very race whose affairs he was governing, but also undermining. Well, what there is in Scott's poetry about indigenous people is really interesting. Um, when Margaret Atwood edited the Oxford Book of Canadian Verse in the 1980s, I think there were only two poets in the entire book, two Canadian poets, who got more pages than Scott. So Atwood clearly was an admirer of Scott's poetry. And of the eight pages, I think it was, that were given to Scott, most of the poems in those eight pages were about Indigenous people. So they, the number of poems he wrote about Indians is is by no means in the majority of his poems. Most of his poems are about nature, or their. Um, um, some of them are about episodes in Canadian history, uh, or British history. In fact, um, they're travel poems. They're the usual range of lyrical poems. 
um, with the exception, again, that he was very reticent personally. There were not many poems addressed to his wife, his daughter, his close friends. He, he kept his personal life very much as a closed book. But there is this significant body of work, maybe 10, 12, 15 poems all told, which deal with indigenous people. And the the beliefs or or the feelings that come through in those poems are surprisingly variable. There's one, for example, that shows a young adult in northern Ontario. I, I think it's a, a young man, in fact, who is attacked by two white trappers and left to die in the wilderness. There's um, another one uh, that shows the heroism, if you like, of, of a young woman who cuts off part of her flesh in a winter snowstorm to serve as, as, as bait for, for fish so that the fish can come through the ice, um, can, you know, through a hole in the mm. ice. And, and then there will be enough food for, for the, the mother and her child. The indigenous people are, are not shown as villainous in these poems at all. But what they are shown as is doomed. Yeah. One way or another, they don't come to a good end. They, whether by necessity or by perfidy or by nature or for whatever reason, they mostly die. So it's as if there was a kind of admiration that Scott often had for indigenous people, but it was, it, it was the feeling, I mean, I really shouldn't put words in his mouth, but, you know, if I think of, of the feeling that the helplessness that many of us feel now, thinking about the fate of Siberian tigers or right whales or, you know, other um, large animal species that are being wiped out and we feel helpless about this. There's kind of that feeling in Scott's poetry as well, that, that here is something that's vanishing from the earth and by God, I'm going to write an analogy about it. Yeah, which t doesn't sort of jive with the fact that his policies were helping that to happen. That's right. It doesn't. And toward the end of the book, uh, you sort of touch on that, that that sort of, uh, well, guilt, I guess, that he may have felt. In his retirement, I think Scott did come to question some of what he'd been responsible for as a bureaucrat in his 52-year career, because he was 69 before he, he retired from the government. And then he enjoyed a comfortable retirement, traveling, writing, so on and so forth. He, but in 1944, he wrote an introduction to a book called Indian Lives and Legends by a painter in British Columbia by the name of Mildred Valley Thornton. And, and a couple of things that Scott said in that introduction seemed to me very kind of revealing. One was uh, the following, and this, this, is, this is how he summarized what he had done. And, and you'll hear just from this one sentence that this does not sound like the writing of a poet. This sounds like someone who is, to me, is trying to suppress his inner knowledge of what he'd done. Scott wrote, my lifelong association with them and their affairs, ranging from the custody of their funds and the protection of their material interests to the amelioration of their social conditions and the promotion of their education was the source of my interest in the sympathetic outlook of the artist-author. And then he went on to say, she has produced enough evidence that the Indian is gradually coming to enjoy any progress our complex life may be making, and she has given proof that he has been able to survive the contact with our so-called civilization. Now, that was in 1944, and perhaps in saying our so-called civilization, World War II was very much on Scott's mind. That was three years before he died. But it sounds to me from that introduction as if Scott was really questioning what the Western world had come to and perhaps what his role in, in dealing with indigenous people over half a century had been. Yeah, and he uses the word progress quite often to justify what he's doing. I think it would have been very rare in the first half of the 20th century for anyone not to do that. 
To this day, it's a word that trips naturally off the tongue of senior civil servants and politicians of every stripe. Right. <laughs> Whatever the hell it means. Exactly. It's also interesting that, that he sort of justifies his, his activities by saying that he was really trying to protect indigenous populations from the worst elements of our civilization. Yeah. In other words, the 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 working class white men who would uh, infringe on reserves, who would uh, sell alcohol to um, indigenous people, you know, not the kind of people who were the sons and daughters of Methodist ministers who enjoyed classical music and gave artworks to the National Gallery of Canada, as Scott did. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a snob, I suppose. There weren't that many people whom he would have thought his intellectual and artistic equals in Canada. Um, and he did have a kind of admiration for the the noble savage, if you like. What the great failure was to realize that indigenous people were not noble savages, mm-hmm. that, that they should have had just as many rights and chances in life as, as as anyone else but Scott and other Canadians of the time could not and would not see that yeah the other thing that that um you know I realize in retrospect that I I should have thought about a little harder when I was writing this book some years ago was the context of the exact moment in which Scott joined the department and began to serve there he joined in 1879 he was 17 years old and that was the moment at which the Prime Minister of the day commissioned uh, an Irish-born journalist and writer named Nicholas Davin to make a study of residential schools in the United States and to report on their suitability for introducing the system on a wide scale into Canada. Now, there already existed the Mohawk Institute in southern Ontario. That was kind of the Canadian prototype. But Davin uh, went down to the States went out to the West and wrote this report recommending the introduction of residential schools as a way to civilize indigenous people. So that would have been the progressive thing to do when Scott was a young man in the department. Then when he'd been there a few years, there was the real uprising, the Northwest uprising, or as it always used to be called, a rebellion. And that was clearly something that shocked and deeply worried people in Ottawa and as they would have seen it threatened the integrity of the country. Riel coming up from the United States and threatening to um, to stop the building of the railway and uh, get in the way of the territorial integrity of Canada and so on and so forth. So that would have caused, that did cause enormous anger as well as anxiety mm. against the Métis and the Indians in fact, that's where Johnny McDonald, some of the some of the things that he says around that topic. That's right. Yep. He is upheld as uh, yep. he was as him he, being geno- genocidal. Yeah, yeah. He was furious. So that was the context in which Scott began his work in the department. And over the years, he may well have believed, and he certainly convinced himself in later years that he was a humanizing influence that there were if there were people in Ottawa who thought that Indians should just be wiped out Scott felt no no they could they could assimilate um, that, that this was that he was his policies were were positive as opposed mm-hmm. to the, the the negative ones yeah so that they were they weren't as uh, aggressive or culpable he's not as culpable as others that's right yeah kind of ironic but that that may have just been sort of the heat of the moment for uh, mcdonald or was he consistently like that i'm not sure and of course he died in 1891 or 1892 so that was still only a few years after the real rebellion the the, the northwest uprising of 1885 so i don't think he had much chance or inclination to moderate his views in the years following that mm-hmm just to, to, toward the end of the book, um, uh, I mentioned that, uh, that, that you have Scott saying 
something like, well, you know, why are you focusing on history and just searching for shamefulness and uh, this uh, laying laying guilt on me? You know, what what else could I have done? That's the sort of the sense that perhaps a big part of the Canadian population feels right now. Like, what what do we have to do? Yeah, I mean, it's an enormous issue, and it's it's very hard to summarize any kind of answer in a, in a, in a few minutes. Uh, I mean, the particular situation facing in Indigenous peoples in different parts of the country is very different, and it's hard to know. It, as as the Justin Trudeau government has has tried to do. Uh, in much of its first mandate to come up with an Indigenous Languages Act, for example, mm-hmm. which will finally take some specific, clear and decisive measures to reverse the decline of the more than 50 Indigenous languages in this country. But what they found is that although they can get the Assembly of First Nations on side, they can't get the Inuit to Pearsat on side. And if they could get the Inuit on board, the Assembly of First Nations would not be. And and even then, of course, that ignores what the position of the non-status Indians might be. So, you know, there's no single answer. I, I think I, the way I prefer to look at it really is, is in terms of what specific measures should be taken and not just or, or not primarily by the mainstream for Indigenous peoples, but what um what what can in what can the mainstream what can those of us who are not indigenous do as friends and as allies of indigenous people in making their own decisions because that's the kind of thing that was the kind of question that was never asked at all in scott's day mm-hmm. in scott's day it was always what can be done for these poor suffering people or these perhaps somewhat dangerous people and we have to make sure that indigenous people have the agency that that the whole questions are are looked at in a in a somewhat different way you know having said that we also need to be willing to celebrate the achievements of indigenous people and that's the one area in which i do feel hopeful the one area in which i feel that canada has come an incredibly long way mm-hmm. over over the past 50 or so years those of us who are not indigenous very often listen to you know the the best indigenous musicians whether it be inuit throat singing or buffy saint marie or a trial tribe called red many readers who are not indigenous are still interested in reading you know the 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 works of Eden Robinson and, and Thomas King and Richard Wagamese and, and, and a host of other indigenous authors. And so it, it's a, there's a sense at last, as I fear there still isn't in a lot of other countries around the world, that indigenous people are themselves able to accomplish great things. Mm-hmm. They're just as civilized as we ever were. Sure. And, and one of the things, you know, the, in, in some ways I have, come to doubt the easy equation of Duncan Campbell Scott with with guilt. I mean, I, I, I think he was responsible for a whole, whole lot of bad things, but as I said before, he wasn't by any means a monster himself. But one way in which his, his, his career, his life, really troubles me, there was a contemporary of his, a poet, named Pauline Johnson, mm. who was a Mohawk, and you might have thought that since Scott was always ready to promote and further the careers of mainstream poets of the time, he was the literary executor of Archibald Lampman and did great things to further Lampman's reputation in the years after Lampman's early death. You know, he, he was in charge for a while of the Canadian Authors Association. He did a whole bunch of things, but he seems, if anything, to have tried to thwart the career of Pauline Johnson. He certainly never saw her as an equal. Hmm. And that troubles me. Perhaps some of it is because she was a woman and and most of Scott's friends were men. But beyond the sexism, it, it's very troubling that for anyone who might be disposed to defend Scott, that he was just 
so um, unhelpful to to Pauline Johnson uh, it, at a time when she really could have could have benefited from the contacts that Scott had in in the publishing and literary worlds of uh, not just Ontario but beyond that to the United States and England. And and how do you explain that then? The typical image in Scott's mind would be of a, an educated white male. Right. Not university necessarily because Scott didn't have the chance to go to university himself and neither did uh, uh, one or two of the other writers whose careers he promoted. But the idea of an indigenous woman being a writer in whatever language was something I don't think Scott could really get his head around. You have him asking for your forgiveness. That's a bit presumptuous. It certainly is. I plead guilty on that score. That's in the last pages of the book. And I felt that instead of simply going back and forth between Scott saying one thing and me saying another and, and, and the, in the conversations part of the book, it being like two battering rams going at each other, mm. I I wanted to show that my opinion had altered somewhat as the book went along, but I wanted to suggest that if Scott could see and hear what had happened in Canada since his death in 1947, that he might change his mind. And therefore, I do presume to have him asking for forgiveness. And uh, it's it's uh, the sin of blindness that you uh, you identify. But you you basically say it's too late. He can't retract the evil he's done. No, so you don't forgive him. It's not for me to do so. If indigenous people themselves wish to do so, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But I'm a university-educated white male writer, so I'm not the one to say that Duncan Campbell Scott deserves to be forgiven. Just uh, finally, and this is more of a kind of a meta question, or a meta, the concept of the book. This is, it's interesting. That's how you end off with a, uh, a comment on the concept of the book. And you suggest that Truth is the seedbed of imagination. That's a good line, isn't it? It's very good, but I don't know if I agree with it. I believe that a book, if it's to succeed as a work of creative nonfiction, has to be imaginative. I also believe it should stay close to the known facts, like that. I think what I was saying at that point in the book which is in a, a, a final note to the reader it's not the end of the last chapter it's, it's a it's a note to the reader justifying yes. the practice of the book so yeah what i wanted to indicate there was that i could have written something which would have been closer to a novel i could for example have given scott three children and I could have had him having a face-to-face -face confrontation with Pauline Johnson. And I could have had him having a personal argument with Peter Bryce, in which Bryce tells him to his face that his policies are destructive to Indigenous people. And I could have had him visiting a residential school and having some kind of epiphany that the terrible food and the lousy uh, ventilation and so on are partly responsible for the, the, the death numbers. And I didn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. I didn't try to make his life more dramatic than he was, than it was. This was a man who spent 52 years as a civil servant, lived in considerable comfort, and died at a ripe old age. So With um, a young wife at the end, too. <laughs> that's something we didn't really get into. No. But yes, a, a young wife. Um, and so the... The, if you like, the imaginative parts of the book, the conversations that I have with Scott, I felt it would only be fair to do that mm -hmm. if I wasn't inventing facts and imagining incidents and creating scenes for which I had no basis of knowledge. Yeah, you don't want that part of the book to undermine the other part of the book. That's right. I want the two to work together. Well, given how central some of these issues are to Canada's current political situation, 
and I'm thinking Jody uh, Wilson-Raybould, I think people should uh, familiarize themselves with uh, this uh, informative, entertaining book. Thank you very much, Nigel. I think it always helps to know history. And I grew up in Western Canada in the 1960s and 70s, knowing very, very little about the country's history. And so I have learned from Indigenous people over the years and in my readings and the people I've listened to, I've learned a lot that I could never have imagined even as a high school student or university student. And uh, I just think being well-informed makes us better citizens. We didn't learn any of this in high school, did we? No. Not a peep. No. The book is entitled uh, Conversations with a Dead Man, The Legacy of Duncan Campbell Scott, and it's published by Douglas and McIntyre. What are you working on now? I've just finished a memoir of my father and my early life called The Organist, Fugue's Fatherhood and a Fragile Mind, which is the most personal book I've ever written. And beyond that, I am feeling a little creatively dry at the moment, and I have no new projects of any consequence in mind. Well, here's to... Uh... A muse showing up soon. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Nigel. I've been speaking with uh, Mark Abley, who is a uh, writer and acquisitions editor based in Montreal, Quebec. Thanks again. Thank you.